Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. Hi, this is Hal Blaine, and you're listening to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello again, fellow diggers. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. I'm Christian Swain, and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco. As the name suggests, Deeper Digs in Rock goes a little deeper, digging into diverse topics all connected to rock music in their own unique way. Please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you love the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, then won't you kindly consider supporting the project financially? We have links to Patreon and PayPal at rockandrollarchaeology.com. A dollar a month, a big 12 bucks a year, diggers, and we will continue to put it to good use. Okay, business handled. Let's drop the needle. I will make a bold prediction. Most of you, no, all of you listening to my voice, have a music collection of some sort. I'll even go a step further. Most of you have a large collection. If you're like me, your collection is mostly digital, perhaps some compact discs. If you were around before CDs, you had cassettes. Before that, vinyl records. There might even be a few of you out there in podcast land who still have an 8-track or reel-to-reel tapes. I mean, that's why we're all here, right? We love music. Everything about it. We love what it does to us when we hear it. We love getting something new or finding a song we haven't heard in a long while. Some of us might have it more than others, but we've all got the bug. We are. All of us. Rock and rollers, after all. If you devised a music collector scale from 1 to 10, where 1 is casual interest and 10 is unhealthy obsession, well, our guest today would rate about an 11 or 12. Paul Major is a New Yorker who collects obscure records, a connoisseur of the weird, the unique, the off the wall, <laughs> our kind of guest. 
And friends, he's got some doozies. Weird, wonderful, obscure, to say the least. Some of the records in his collection are unique in the literal sense of the word. As best as anyone can tell, they are the only copies out there. And some of his rarity records can fetch thousands of dollars from other collectors. Paul is a pioneer in the field. He's now been collecting for over half a century. Born in 1954, Paul had a pretty ordinary upbringing in Kentucky. Uh, But at the age of 12, lightning struck square in the forehead. He heard the song we opened with, Psychotic Reaction, by Count Five. It was all over. Other pursuits were replaced by a single-minded devotion to the minor gods of rock and roll. By 16, not only had his record collection grown tremendously, he was playing guitar in bands around St. Louis. Eventually, he made it to New York City, just as the burgeoning punk scene was getting hot. There, he made his mark. In between gigs at CBGB's and Max's Kansas City, to make ends meet, he began a mail-order business, trading and selling LPs. And it took off. He thought it would be small, lo- local deals with other punkers and weirdos in and around New York City, but it wasn't long before he was selling and swapping with like-minded folks all over the country. It's a quirky, funny story, so let's hear Paul tell it. I sat down with Paul Major at Mexican Summer Studios in Brooklyn on October 12th to discuss his new book, Feel the Music, The Psychedelic Worlds of Paul Major, and a companion vinyl album, Feel the Music Volume 1, which chronicles his personal tour of rock and roll's deeper caverns. The subject is time. The process is thought. The question, where does it go? to Deeper Digs in Rock. Paul Major, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. You know, I'm uh, halfway across the Atlantic, back from Europe now in my mind, and uh, sitting here the, with Your you. body's here, <laughs> but uh, you left the mind uh, uh, at the International Dateline, or uh, right. I guess the Atlantic is not really the, the mind comes along a little, <laughs> a little slower, especially after a tour at my age. Uh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were over there for about a month, is about that right? About a month, yeah, yeah. Yeah, touring the album and the book at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. So, and we'll talk about that. The book, Feel the Music, uh, and... And then uh, your latest album with uh, with Endless Boogie, Vibe Killers, right? Right. Oh, very cool, very cool. Well, let's let's start at the beginning and uh, kind of get uh, you know the Paul Top Dollar, aka Top Dollar, major um, uh, origin story. So uh, I believe you grew up uh, in Kentucky, is that right? Right, Louisville, Kentucky, uh, born in 1954, July 31st. And uh, the Paul Major music story starts at 
August, I don't know the date, but the end of August in 1966, when I had just turned 12 years old. Oh, and yeah. Big year for Up till then, roll. you know, I was a, the typical uh, least popular kid in the school, <laughs> last uh, picked for teams, chased oh. around at recess by the bullies and stuff. So I was very isolated. Oh, and yeah. uh, to top it off, uh, I was kind of a mathematics whiz. And they oh. started wanting me to stay after school and get extra math tutoring. And... Uh, that was kind that of didn't help your reputation. Bumming me out or something. <laughs> but then I heard Psychotic Reaction by the Count Five on Top 40 radio uh, soon after it was a hit. And it changed me overnight. Fuzz guitar, the whole attitude. I couldn't add two plus two anymore or, or even care about anything else except music and records and mowing people's lawns in my neighborhood so I could save up enough money and go off to the Kmart or wherever and buy records and look for more records that sounded like what that Count Five song did to me. And what it did to me is it seemed like flying saucers that come from outer space and it crashed into my mind. So so that is the origin moment of rock and roll for you. Uh, that's Count it. Five's psychotic reaction. Yeah, I can see that. That's, uh, that's a cool, cool hip song. Uh, and uh, a little kind of garage punky sort of thing very, very early. Uh, and I think I've read some places can't say that that is like the first punk song. Yeah, it could be uh, considered that and there were other things brewing, but certainly for the punk leaning a little into the psychedelic and stuff, right, you know, because right, right. the earlier, I guess, mostly obscure garage singles Usually as, you know, some guy, you know, yammering on over a crude riff about how his girlfriend screwed him over or whatever, <laughs> right, that right. kind of stuff. Yeah. But that's where, what, what with the double time changes, the early psychedelic sort of sensibilities leaking well, in. Well, 66, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, you know, LSD is uh, free uh, pretty much out in California, which the Count Five is out of San Jose. Right. So that's not too far from Ken Kesey and the Grateful Dead. No, that's that right old, there. That right there. So it was yeah. happening there. And, of course, in Louisville, Kentucky at that time, uh, there was nothing like that to be found uh, anywhere near me. And I had read that Life magazine article uh, about LSD, one that has a picture. Oh, yeah. And there's a picture on one of the pages of this guy sitting in the corner, like looking completely demented, freaking out. And the caption says, this guy thinks he is an orange. And I remember reading that about the time that I heard the count five and thinking, I want to think I'm an orange. And for Several years until finally in high school when I did meet up with uh, like some uh, early for Louisville standards sort of, you know, people that had pot and ass and stuff like that. Up until then, I only could uh, imagine what getting out of your head like that was like. And the way I did it was going, looking at these album covers, saying, ooh, there's a 10-minute song called Mind Flowers on this one. Maybe that's what it's like. I gotta oh, listen that, to that maybe one. that'll get me there. Huh? I'd be listening <laughs> in my bedroom, <laughs> you know, and buying all these... Uh, obscure records that look like that and you know just sort of that was my lifeline to the to the world uh -huh. and that's what sparked me the garage punk and the psychedelic thing into the obscure record thing because uh soon after you know i realized okay i had these famous ones or the ones that were hits and i needed more so i would just want to go looking for things i didn't know what they were and there was no way to have information about it just look at the cover and look at these and say, Ooh, that looks like 
that looks like one of those things. And Oh, I know what you mean. I used to read all the liner notes and mm-hmm. try to figure out who was who and, you know, match guys. Uh, now, I, I didn't go deep into, uh, into the uh, obscure like you have, of which, you know, that's something else you're really famous for is, you know, this huge record collection of very obscure, rare uh, tracks and albums out there. Uh, and I guess it probably started with getting psychotic reaction, right? Yep, that's that was the initial spark. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went that direction for a long time. I branched out a little bit. You know, there was a time period where if a record had a horn section on it, I, I, that can't be psychedelic in a way. Not that I didn't like, you know, the stacks, soul music and stuff like that right, too. And right, pop right. music in general, uh-huh. I guess because of the situation, uh, I guess all across America, but in Louisville, there were two competing... Uh, top 40 AM radio stations and music wasn't like, you know, divided off into all genres and stuff by different outlets at all the artists competed. So it's like, you know, the count five would be competing for number one with Petula Clark and Otis Redding and Hugo Winterhalter and her strings or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) So I, I developed a real pop sensibility because I loved a lot of the pop's stuff as well in that but it was really the garage and the psychedelic that stuff spoke was, to you that spoke to me and right. that's the stuff where i realized mm-hmm. i have to find more and find more mm-hmm. and uh mm-hmm. try every record that looks interesting and it was a good situation because when that explosion happened then through the rest of the 60s just like with uh, nirvana getting sparking uh, major labels to sign up every band in seattle the psychedelic thing sparked the major labels yep. to sign every anything that even had a remote uh, psychedelic. Throw these albums out there. Oh, and there's were, some fun stuff to listen to. Oh, just yeah. awesome! And yeah. uh, and so I could go into Kmart, you know, some months after the re- record failed to make the charts, and there they would be for like forty four cents sealed, you know, in these bins in the Kmart by my house. So I'd be buying Silver Apples albums and and this, and that's how I got the, first got into the Velvet Underground and all these oh, all these yeah. bands like that back as a kid, is because mm-hmm. they were the cheapest records and and it was that perfect window of time where the experimental and bizarre stuff was was also commercially well as most of our listeners know um they've uh, picked up our episode nine uh the medium the message the music where we talk about lsd's influence on music in the mid 60s uh in fact um you know it's the b we 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 set the beatles up and then after the beatles Mm -hmm. it's it's lsd and the psychotropic drugs that uh that are associated with it uh, become a big thing and every you know band starts experimenting first uh, musically uh, and then with the drug and then the drug changing the music and yeah for a couple of years it gets pretty wild and crazy there it does it's like everything was up for grabs and uh doing something like that after the beatles and so forth also with the forces that be hooked it up with the channels to get it out in the world Mm -hmm. or something so it's like well i guess like the story of underground movements and stuff like that uh, you know it starts out real cool then the commercialization comes in and then it's all over. <laughs> yeah, well, it, and it happens every time. Yeah, yeah. yeah you got a window of uh, where things are cool and mm-hmm. then it's passe, you know, yeah. so for one reason or another. But, so, yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, you're a musician and, you know, when did you start uh, start playing guitar? That would have been uh, 1967. I, I was uh, obsessed with having a guitar, but my father had wrecked his truck and couldn't walk for three years and stuff. So my family had no money. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, food on the table was more like it. No guitar for Paul. But <laughs> in the Christmas of uh, 67, under the Christmas tree is a plastic toy guitar. <laughs> really? And so it's like it's not a real guitar. But, but I was really excited. You know, I, I got my crayons out and colored it all psychedelic and, and uh, you know, started playing it. And I was like, uh, you know, man, how can I get that fuzz sound? And then I had the idea all tape a pencil on next to the strings under the bridge of the guitar and it makes them buzz when oh, I pluck them. Yeah, so I'm like, yeah. Zzz, Ooh, very inventive. So you get a little along bit of records. distortion uh, in that to get yeah, that fuzzy sound. Yeah, a little acoustic uh, yeah. distortion. And, and I did that for a while. And uh, by the time I went to college in St. Louis in 1972, I had gotten a real electric guitar, and mm-hmm. uh, then I had a friend named Wolf, uh, and we started a band called the Moldy Dogs in St. Louis, and pre-punk days, and, right. and we would uh, we actually did do some gigging in little places. We talking us, uh, we got to play in your place, you know. You know, we'll have friends come by; they'll buy some pastrami or whatever, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah. We, and we did that. We, and we would play Stooges songs and Velvet Underground songs and that. And this would be in St. Louis in the mm-hmm. early mid seventies, and uh, eventually became a band. And then the punk rock thing happened. We put a punk rock festival on in January seventy seven in St. Louis, and about four hundred people came. And then we said, okay, we got to go to New York or L.A. And uh, so you kind of got too big for the Louisville area, or and, no, no, it was just a novelty thing. This, right. was, this was St. Louis too when I was in college. But oh, uh, I'm it, sorry, it, St. Louis. Yeah. But it, it was more like a novelty thing. The mm-hmm. uh, other guys that were run it did a good job promoting it, and, and punk was a little bit in the news. So it was mostly just people coming to see what what, what is this weirdness going to be like. You know, there were really probably only several dozen people mm-hmm. into it in St. Louis at that time. Right. And, and almost all of them were in the other bands. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So it was a choice between L.A. and New York. What was it, flip a coin or? No, it was, uh, it was because uh, the day after that show in St. Louis, there was a big blizzard in St. Louis. And then we said, oh, L.A., palm no. trees, yeah. beaches and stuff, <laughs> and went there. And uh, we had a demo recorded by then. And uh-huh. So we were going to go out and take it to the record yeah. labels. Yeah. And, you know, the way it used you to be You can imagine right. how right. that right. went <laughs> <laughs> at the height of disco. But, uh, a lot of knocking on doors and get out of here, kid. Like, right, uh, right, yeah, right, yeah. Right. <laughs> but we had a good time. It was uh, kind of a magical time for me because being in Los Angeles the first half of 77, and it was extremely cheap. Then too, we yeah. found an apartment Where at? right uh, about a block away from the corner of Sunset and Vine. We found a oh, little dumpy apartment, okay. but it was one hundred and twenty-five dollars a month split between two guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in LA, yeah. oh, I only oh. have to come up with sixty something dollars a month. Well, wait, I don't think I need a job. Right, right. <laughs> I can play music all the time. So we did that, and we, and we had a good time. But the mm. punk scene, the mask, and the punk clubs hadn't started yet. Yeah, and there were some shows. Uh, British bands come over to the whiskey and Starwood and places like that, and yeah, so like forth. The, and like we realized, like the damned, which yeah, is like the, the first, uh, yeah, the first. I think you, you actually went there. to that show. Yeah, right? I was yeah. there at that show. Wow. Yeah, and uh, a fair number of other ones too. It was good timing, and mm-hmm. there were a bunch of people around, but the, you know, it was still coming off the glam type thing into punk or something. Uh, yeah, uh, one thing that. One of the more memorable times there was it was at the time of the Iggy Pop, the Idiot Tour, the mm-hmm. one where uh, Bowie played the keyboards That's and so right. forth at yep. the Santa Monica Civic, and Blondie was the opening band. And I remember then people were lining up outside the Santa Monica Civic way before the show, oh, so we had yeah. hours to talk, and the 
three people standing next to me and Wolf were, were uh, at that time, Bobby Penn and Pat Smear and Lorna, who, who formed the Germs later, which is oh, uh, yeah. one of the most important yeah. early. And yeah, yeah, Pat ones. Smear, who's now in uh, the uh, Foo Fighters. And so yeah. forth. Yeah. So there were yeah. things like that, people around, cool sort of magical thing happening, but we realized, oh, we should have went to New York. And I came, we came to New York and moved in the city in January 78. And then I, that's now when you're it, still collecting records. This yeah. Whole that's time, when yeah. it sort of hit me. Oh, that, 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 this uh, yeah, is, cause this I've, is the I have moment. these chocolate watch band records. I have these 13th floor elevators records and all these things. And I'm up really sort of that time. I had, I had no conception that, you know, anybody besides me and a few other people cared <laughs> about them. And then I walk into some stores and I say, Whoa, there's the moving sidewalks album on the wall for $50. I got one of those. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't pay 50 bucks for it. Yeah, wow. I paid more like, yeah, 50 cents. <laughs> right, and, right. And, and so I, I was doing accumulating records till then, and I guess being a collector. And, and then when I came to New York, I realized, wait, there are other people out there that want these things. And yeah. I pretty quickly got into a deal in the records and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. and it made it great in New York, too. One of those other things, which seems unimaginable now, considering I just lost my apartment last year because the rent went up to $2,900 a month, was I had an apartment on the corner of Bleecker and McDougal Street, again, split with my friend from the band, and the rent there was $198 a month. So I'm in New York thinking, oh, I have to come up with $99 yeah, a month. Yeah, I don't need a job yeah. again. <laughs> I, can just go to, I can just go to these record stores and buy a few records here and take them over to another store and double the price. And my rent's paid in a few hours. Yeah. Because by then you've gained this knowledge, this special knowledge yeah, uh, yeah. that uh, you could uh, fuss out a, uh, you know, a, a record that was worth something and that somebody wasn't getting full value for buy it. And as you said, take it down and somewhere and, else and yeah. double it or more. And I think with my, Obsession with the obscure bands mm-hmm. uh, and, and the styles of Psychedelic and Garage and all those uh, things. Uh, people only had the idea that something that's well-known and famous had any value. So you'd walk into a record store and it would be Mothers of Invention and Yardbirds re- records would be the ones on the wall for money. And in the cheap section of the store where they throw all their garbage is where all the obscure, unknown, now massively valuable records yeah, were so yeah. and that went on all the way up till the internet got going this was kind of almost a secret society around the world of me in new york and people i knew in every city hitting all the local records and stuff like that and trading them back and forth and so there were and, paul majors across the country there were yes wow. so and then you start a newsletter i believe uh, right yes in early i'm not sure what year but it'd be the early 80s uh I had been putting ads in the record collecting magazine called Goldmine then. Mm. My, once I realized, oh, I should you know buy every copy I see of these great records because I can sell them and that can be my job. And because um, who wants to work? Yeah, who wants to work? <laughs> you know, I want to spend all my time on my playing bands music, and right, playing music. Right. right. So um, and so you're and by the way, you're you're playing the 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 punk club scene here. You know. Yeah. Most yeah. famously, CBGB and, and Max's Kansas, Kansas City. Kansas City right, Mainly right. those two. When I first got here, those were pretty much the only two. There were a few other places shows went on, but mm-hmm. it was really several hundred people still small scene around New York and yeah. uh, and only those two clubs. So I'd be out at Max's all night, wake up in the afternoon, uh, and, uh, had a fake job at a legendary record store called village oldies. But it was at that time more just a 
place to party all day or something. So <laughs> hang out there all day and go out, you know, and go out looking for records and stuff and started selling them on the, in the Goldmine magazine and realized, oh, the same people are buying every weird record I put on there. I should start writing their addresses down. And then I collected addresses and then, then started making direct mailings to them that turned into my catalogs of mm-hmm. all the spare things I had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've seen some of the catalog pages that you hand typed out uh, in the, the, the book, right. uh, Feel the Music, uh, Volume 1, by the way. So I mm-hmm. assume there's a Volume 2 planned. You know, there's enough material <laughs> for a Volume 102 <laughs> or something. The yeah, co- the, the, the de- that's the first thing that got me as I went through the book was like, Wait a minute, uh, this all typewritten record collection? Wow, that's pretty crazy. Cataloged out, that's, that's pretty wild. So your typing skills must be uh, pretty honed pretty well, huh? Mm. Well, actually, <laughs> if you look at them, you know, uh, besides the fact that I was using these old typewriters where one of the keys would always be funky and stuff oh, for that. Uh-huh. But uh, there's lots of crazy misspellings and, and stuff like that because mm-hmm. the way I used to do it when I really got going with the catalogs is I'd accumulate all these records for a couple months or so when it's time to do a catalog and I just sit up all night and freeform in my mind stream of consciousness like how can I convey what this record's like since 90% of the records in, in my catalog nobody's heard about heard right? of yeah. before at yeah. that other time other than some of these other some of these Paul other Majors guys that, that are in the, the other secret society the guys that are supplying each <laughs> yeah. other uh, yeah. with, with the you know the things that they find and you know and eventually people in other countries in the same situation but it was a tiny thing now i never imagined more than you know hundreds of people would care about things that now i see oh quarter of a million people have listened to that on YouTube, you know? Yeah, isn't that crazy? (laughs) Yeah, now, of course, it's, you know, a lot of these records are are now streamed and, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. now digitally and able to get down. So it it takes a little bit of the magic away, I think, without having that tangible piece of vinyl and the the jacket that goes with it. Right. You know, like you said earlier, you know, when you were young, you know, um, pre-LSD days, you would... You know, just stare at the cover as this 10-minute-long song played, trying to, to get yeah, there. Yeah, you know? trying to get there. You, like, can't, yeah. you can't do that anymore. Trying to have a ticket to another world. That's you know, right. I'm thinking, wow, you know, feeling like you're really in on some, you know, some, <laughs> something. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, the way that has changed, uh, I guess for me, it's I'm really glad that all this stuff's been preserved now, and I'm really happy that actually I had something to do with it this in this stage of my life coming back where I feel like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I, mean, I, did, I, did, something. I did something. I accomplished something. <laughs> right. I right, did so, right. Something, but yeah. So I weigh that against, you know, of course, you know, the, the old days when it was digging for buried treasure, you know, and here, Oh, there's some place in Bowling Green, Kentucky, where this guy has a barn full of old records, you know, or something. You go down there and it would literally be like you're, you're digging and waiting to, you know, dig up some diamonds or something and find all these incredible looking things that, you know, nobody in the world who would be interested knows anything about them. And I have the ears to detect the good ones. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, specialized knowledge. Definitely. So it was, you know, just something I can't imagine, you know, uh, how many age. records do you think went through your hands? Oh, jeez. Yeah, it'd be over 100,000, I'm sure. But mm-hmm. uh, um, It sure seems like it, just yeah. from the typewritten yeah. uh, catalog uh, that's uh, represented, and that's just a portion of it. Portion of it, yeah. Represented in the book, yeah. Yeah, so there were lots. Yeah, it was sort of like, you know, my... Uh, 
my other, you know, like the blood in my body, the blood of <laughs> my existence or something, <laughs> these things flowing through me. And uh, fairly early on, uh, I originally was obsessed with the object and being a collector and having to have it. But then I got more addicted to the next taste and the next taste. So anything I had would be available to get me something else I hadn't had. Mm-hmm. And so, so like, I became more of a channel like, yeah. or something yeah. rather than uh, for a time I had like actual alphabetized. Okay, these are my records and these are the ones I'm you're, you're available. Trading, yeah. And they started all getting mixed up. And then finally I, I realized... Um, no, I'm, I'm not going to be a butterfly or a stamp collector about right. it. My, my, uh, it's about my the experience. The experience, right. yes, and, and turning other people on to it and, and keeping the thrills going uh, for me personally. I mean, one of the craziest things I remember when I first had, like, my first little stack of psychedelic records with really weird covers, and, and I was thinking about, like, like... I guess goth kids do now or something thinking about my mortality without any, <laughs> any sense of what it, that's really like when you're that young yeah, or something. Yeah. But I had this idea, I'm going to get a big plasticine coffin made clear plastic and embed all my favorite album covers in it. So when I'm buried, it'll be like 13 or floor elevators there and, right. and fraction there or whatever, just weird. Just records. in case, kind of like the old Egyptians used to do. Take it yeah, with you. Yeah. Take it with you. Yeah. <laughs> for the other, for the other side, you know? Yeah. 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 So yeah. I would take the records, you know, mm. you know, food, I'll find food on the other side. <laughs> what's the, what's the longest you had to wait to get a record that you like, Oh, I, I gotta, I gotta have this thing. I gotta listen to it. What's, what's a, oh, what's a story that, uh, that you really had to work at. Okay, here's one. Yeah, here's one. Yeah, and uh, in the earliest days, uh, amongst the secret society, certain names were passed around, and I knew about this guy who didn't have a phone in Illinois, who supposedly had this album called Mystery Meat from 1967 or 68 or something, and it got to be on everybody's want list around the world. World, the world all heard about it, but nobody had actually heard the record. And it took me years before somebody sent me a very messed up, poor quality tape, intentionally poor quality tape, so I could hear it, you know. And uh, I thought it sounded pretty fantastic. Uh, and I found out who the guy was who didn't have the phone. I was writing him letters saying, you know, blah, 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 blah. Just, or, and that didn't happen. So we're talking maybe 10 years or something, you know, before I finally heard it. And then later, finally... Somebody did get a hold of the band, got a few copies of that. And, and then I heard the actual record, and it sounded way more interesting on the really messed up, poor quality tape. It sounded it, mysterious. It but when I heard it, I said, oh, this is just kind of so an it was ordinary... A little, it was a little of a letdown. Yeah, it was a letdown. <laughs> it's like, oh, this this is another ordinary garage band. There's nothing twisted going on here. There's no there's no sense of uh, you know danger or anything. It's just another kids with a garage band but a you know a good one but uh, right. yeah it, right. it, it wasn't a, a thrill but mm-hmm. yeah lots of things went for a long time that might have been the one that it took me the longest uh, from knowing about it you know a decade or yeah. something to actually hear what it sounded like <laughs> well what's the biggest thrill that you 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 got there are a lot uh i could go two ways with that one is my um Obsession with the garage and psychedelic changed at the end of 1977 when I got hold of a record called Addict Demonstration by a guy from New Jersey named Kenneth Higney, who had made a private record. He was making sort of demoing songs for country artists, and the way it's recorded, it just came 
out like something from the Twilight Zone, another dimension. There'd be, you know, blast of crazy fuzz guitar, these really morbid, bizarre lyrics. Uh, it just, I felt like I'm getting into some human being's head, and this guy's got to be far out. I listen to this record, I feel like I'm in his brain. And uh, that sort of thrill led me to other artists, like one, perhaps my favorite along those lines is a guy named Peter Grudzian from New York, who... Uh, in the late 50s, his family had driven south, and he was a 13-year-old gay teenager <laughs> in Queen, Astoria, Ouch. Queens. And he heard country music on the radio. And when he came back, he started a Johnny Cash-type trio and started doing country music. And then by the uh, 1974, I think, when he actually made this record uh, called The Unicorn, it was another thing from the Twilight Zone where it wasn't like uh, you know strange music or a novelty thing. It was deeply addressing love, sex, art, everything, but with a country music framework, mm -hmm. yet not trying to be strange, he would use chopped up choral music and fuzz guitars and, and weird, just weird stuff in it. So it sounded like, you know, like Halloween at, at the Grand Old Opry or something. Ooh, I'm intrigued. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to go listen to that. Yeah, it's <laughs> fascinating record and his whole story's gotten out there too. So th those are some of the biggest thrills is when I went off into more being interested in the human being behind the record and finding out about their lives when, when like, you know, out of this mysterious, you know, pile of records somewhere, I'll find something, say, what is this going to sound like? And I hear it and I go, what is this person yeah, like? Who could possibly come up with this? <laughs> right. Wow. And the stories become endless uh, mm -hmm. then, then of me tracking these people down, sometimes finding out, oh, it's somebody, you know, went on to lead a normal life you yep. know, or whatever. Yeah. It and was a moment of record right. business sort of love and yeah. attention. And then other ones where I say, oh, the, the, this bizarre record is just a teaser for what a this really person's bizarre life person. was like. <laughs> wow. Oh, okay. So my next question is, who's the most bizarre that you've tracked down? Well, that would be... Ooh, that would fall in categories. There have been crazy people. There's one person whose name I can't... Somebody I tracked down, but I, I can't really mention we'll his name or something. You know, I had a lot of trouble <laughs> finding Mr. X because the local police were looking for him at the same time, too. And so he did not want to be and found. We don't even want to discuss what they were looking for him for. And, uh, right, right. And there are ones like that. There have uh, been um, you know, people that it took me a long time to convince them I wasn't one of their friends playing a practical joke. I actually was interested in their music you know, because they had... So far you know, I'm seriously interested in your music. If you have any copies, I'll send you a hundred dollars for every copy, you know. And meanwhile, back 20, 30 years ago or whatever, they probably sold three copies, you know, besides the ones that they gave to their mom and their <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> or something. Right. So there are those. But uh uh Peter Grudzian would be the guy. And I got to know him quite well. Uh, back in the mid nineties, I reissued the album on C D. I got involved with the uh, doing things for him and anecdotes and he's, about He's based him. out of London, is that right? No, no, no. He no, was out of Astoria, oh. Queens. Oh, Queens. And, oh, and okay. he's the the kid whose family took a trip down south and oh, heard country okay. music, and he became the, mm -hmm. you know, the, uh, for lack of a better term, the Twilight Zone hillbilly of Astoria, Queens. Wow. <laughs> and so I have stories, uh, endless stories. There's some in the book uh, mm -hmm. about that with him. And his whole life really, that w that was the... You know the, the pinnacle for me of of uh, getting to know someone whose worldview and entire existence was so unique that that uh, 
you know, there's nothing else else like it. Right. And it's captured in the music. <laughs> right, right. So is that what you go after in your music to try to, you know, capture something really unusual and unique and uh, different than uh, than the average pop song? You mean like me making yeah. music and mm-hmm. endless boogie? That yeah. I guess that's a little different, especially with endless boogie. I have done some more odd things and experimental things in the past, but my plan is more, I guess, a little more just some of these influences leak in, yeah. but I'm really into connecting with people and just like um, with tracking these people down and having to know what their lives are like, it, it's me playing and then having to find out what what did my playing do, do to your life or something right. with our audiences. So Endless Boogie, it's more a no-message band that really is about sort of like we come over and we're all having a party together and and we improvise a lot and you know everything pretty much happens in the moment. We just have a very basic start and stop structure and everything's up for grabs oh, in the middle. Oh, it's all improvisational. But it's hard middle. rock mm-hmm. and uh, people have pointed out we, we weren't intending to do this, but when the records started coming out, the reviews would say some, sometimes something like, well, how come nobody ever thought of this before? Southern rock mixed with kraut rock. You know, right. Something because we use long, <laughs> trancey rhythms, but, you know, raunchy, you know, guitars. We love, you know, ZZ Top and ACDC and Creedence and the Velvets and a lot of raunchy guitar bands, but we like this minimalist, trancey thing, too. So it seems to be... Uh, yeah, like uh, to the me. Big German band craft work. You know, yeah, yeah. Like Things yeah. along those lines, people detect in our rhythm. So it's sort of like we stumbled into something of our own, you mm-hmm. know, and without trying to, to do it. So... Uh, yeah, and so earlier this year, you came out with a new album, Vibe mm-hmm. Killer, right? Right. Yeah, talk a little bit about that. It was... Uh, that one took a little more time to record than the other ones because there, there were some mishaps. Like I, in the midst of recording, and I broke my arm, so I couldn't play for for about five months, and it got put back here and there. But it was done similarly to the other ones in that first we would go in the studio. In fact, uh, with Vibe Killer, this room we're sitting in right here is uh, where most of it was recorded, and we would record four or five hours of jams and and stuff and then listen to them and then mess around with some of them and pull an album out of it uh, mm-hmm. like that so that it starts with a spontaneous sort of thing and then we try not to think too much but figure okay unlike a live performance this one's going to be you know played over and over so we want to tart it up a little bit or something just to, <laughs> and be a little more concise or something right. just to you know make it uh, an interesting uh experience or something mm-hmm. so we had some different moves this time like the first track on side two is inspired by a sort of 70s sort of funk artist named bohannon that's where the groove came from so it's almost like endless boogies using a sort of disco-y groove on one song <laughs> but oh uh, really <laughs> okay all right but, uh you know otherwise it's our yeah jesper will come up with riff and then we'll jam it and i'll just you know words will pop in my head and mm-hmm. I'll start saying them and, mm-hmm. and we'll just, you know, jam on it a bit and then it'll turn into a song. I don't think we've ever s- sat down and wrote a song. <laughs> it just, it, it happens in the studio yeah, while the yeah. tape's running. Right. Yeah. Right. The song sort of. Right. Uh, right. Come, so know. we have, uh, the, the album and you have the book and this is your first book. Yes. Yeah. I was involved with, uh, a book that came out a few years earlier called Enjoy the Experience, which is a sort of big coffee table sized book devoted to privately made records of all styles. 
in the USA, like lounge bands that made their records to sell, you know, like the 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 Novas at, at the Rooster Tail Lounge and the, and they'll mm-hmm. do you know at least uh for me uh when they when bands like this do try to do MacArthur Park it's always a thrill to here's here's some broken down like three men you know like uh <laughs> lounge act sleazy lounge act trying to do that and right. stuff so, so it would be those it would be folk artists that made their own records mm-hmm. it, it'll include uninteresting records that have good stories behind them uh people's lives and just all kinds of records the and, and people that the only qualification being that they made their own record they were outside the industry they were driven right. enough to make their own record back mm-hmm. in the days when when that was, that was not was an easy thing to do deal. Yeah, yeah yeah i mean it's not like today where you know anybody right. can download a bit of software and uh, right. start Rec- recording right record an album on their phone yes you know? yes you can literally <laughs> record an album. in fact i think people have so yes yeah, yes pretty so so that i was involved with that book uh Johan Kugelberg and Michael Daly and I being the, I guess, the main people. And there's a section on there that sort of led to the Feel the Music book. There's a chapter in there that has a bunch of my writings from those weird catalogs as well. And, you know, and uh, that's really it, you know, as far as books I've other previously, yeah, yeah. This is really the first book where it's a it, it's like a book about me or well, my tell, book or something. Yeah, there have been other ones I've appeared in, like. There used to be these books called Incredibly Strange Music back, uh, it's probably back in the 90s. So I get in there and some, some other people have written books, Songs in the Key of Z, some other ones where I'll contribute some stuff. But mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. but that's it. Yeah. But this is this is all Paul Major here. All me. So, so you had to life. do it. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is, it's, 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 a, it's a bit of an origin story of mm-hmm. you and your background and, and how you came about becoming this huge record collector. Uh, and then a good bit of it is, you know, the cataloging and then some some cuts that I think that you found the most interesting, right? Right. right? So what, you know, what's the rarest album that you, you still own today? Ooh. There are a few albums. Uh, I've channeled almost everything, and especially in my life, where it became a business for mm-hmm. that. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, keep yeah. that many. You know, there's one called the Greenbow Valley Sound that I love mm-hmm. that's uh, only been a handful of copies ever found in that. But it's not for everybody. It's kind of extreme. You know, this... <laughs> say, the extreme oh, oh, of the what, extreme. What's this, in, you know, what's this in that stuff? But it's a, man, it's a fascinating record to me because it's, it's from... Uh, down in Arkansas somewhere, as far as I can tell. And it's like some kids that also made a with an older guy that also made a Christian record, but they made this record. And, uh, there are some cool songs like with titles like zap me and confusion and stuff. So it sounds like some backwoods, uh, hill, hillbillies, like catching an early West coast, you know, uh, psychedelic thing at the same time. Yeah. You know. Was this 66, 67? No, this is be, being, you know, especially in Arkansas. Oh, can't yeah, even determine, right. but yeah, my, my <laughs> guess would be late sixties. And, okay. and if it's even further in the sticks in Arkansas, it could even be the early seventies. Who, mm-hmm. who can tell? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but I, I caught yeah. one from the book, uh, by honey LTD. Right. Or honey limited. Limited. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Which was kind of interesting. And I think you say that's one of the rarest albums, uh, out there as well yeah yeah uh, to my knowledge you can count on one hand all the known copies and 
It's intriguing because they were well-known uh, appearing on the Bob Hope USO tours and on, on uh, variety shows on TV. And they were sort of, you know, being primed to be a star girl group. And uh, the record came out, or, or didn't came out, <laughs> on, on Lee Hazelwood's label, which was an interesting label. You know, uh-huh. there, there are... There's an extremely rare psychedelic record called The Aggregation Mind Odyssey on there that even, even in the old days mm-hmm. would go for hundreds of dollars when the biggest ones only went for hundreds of dollars and now who knows. But there and uh, there are some other ones, but for some reason with this one, you know, it had a real cover. It was really made uh, and it vanished or whichever. So so it's, it's hard to even say how much uh, it's worth. It's probably one of those records where two people with money mm-hmm. <laughs> want it that's how much it's worth mm-hmm. like like this other record that i discovered which uh is one of my big discoveries uh called uh stonewall is the name of the band and it came out in 1976 on a label called tiger lily and tiger lily was a tax scam loss operation run by morris levy who's a notorious uh owned roulette records uh, yeah. and and so forth notorious genovese family connected mm-hmm. gangster with a very colorful life so people would send demos into roulette records and uh he, he would press up albums and yeah and say he spent money promoting the groups and that and the group would not even know some of the bands that i tracked down that came out on this tiger lily they didn't even know there was they an didn't album even made. an album was made oh god <laughs> and, and it was the same with uh with this uh, Stonewall band, and uh, and now that Morris Levy's dead, in fact, uh, uh, still some of the guys in Stonewall are paranoid about a reissue or something. Because you know what, what? somebody's going to come and get <laughs> somebody's us. Somebody's going to come and get <laughs> us. And I think the they're Tom- going to end up in the East River, huh? yeah. <laughs> like that Tommy James and the Shondells. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, I guess the being a big mob, money uh, ma- maker, yeah. you know, yeah. like Tommy James yeah. held off till Morris Levy was dead to even talk so, about those days. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and that, um, but but the Stonewall album. Um, I had gotten it back back in the late 80s in a box of records. I used to have people, like I said before, in the Secret Society, I'd just say, send me boxes of all the weird records you find. And I'd yeah. come in, and this is in it once. And my head wasn't so hard rocked in. It was more hard rock than mm-hmm. weird. So I stuck it in a catalog for 60 bucks, and nobody bought it. Fortunately, I listened to it later. I think, wow, this is good hard rock. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is wild. And eventually... Uh, Became another one of those stories. That's a record where you can count on your fingers the numbers of known copies, and one of them sold a year and a half ago, maybe or something, for fourteen thousand mm-hmm. dollars. And so, so for a, an obscure hard rock band, that's probably the the biggest price ever for a rock record. You know, rock records are not like comic books; there aren't million dollar rock records. But uh, not yet, not yet. Who right? knows? It may right. change. Uh, you yeah. know. So, you know, uh, as, as I was doing some research on you mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, going through uh, the book, um, you know, I started saying, well, geez, I want to know what this sounds like. And mm-hmm. I was easily able to get on Spotify and find almost all of, uh, of the bands. Now, some of them have like less than a thousand uh, downloads or right. streams, which is, mm-hmm. you know, says that it's it's pretty obscure. Um, but uh, there was a, a lot of interesting things. So, you know, my, my question is that, you know, now that the streaming is out there and all of these albums are, are being put mm-hmm. up uh, there, is that going to change the, the record collecting market for these obscure albums? Yeah, you know, um, for sure, as the more people hear them, the really good ones that are 
really scarce are, are going to continue to increase in value. And even since that started and before that downloads and before that YouTube, when people with collections were posting it, mm-hmm. it drove up the value of all the good ones. You know, there, you know, even records like there's one called the Music Emporium that way back in the day, like decades ago, was already a thousand dollar album. You know, it's 200 copies psychedelic record from Los Angeles. And it got bootleg reissued on vinyl many times and stuff and more people got to know it. And, uh, I'm not sure how many years ago this might be even be 15 or 20 years ago. Somebody basically found the entire pressing sealed and, uh, it didn't, stop being a thousand dollar album right, right. <laughs> it's, well there, there may yeah like there's, most so there's things a it's a double-edged sword yeah, i mean yeah. the fact is is that by having these things available um you know people can at least go and sample it and go wow right that's crazy i really gotta have yeah. that you know and that doesn't stop the real collectors who no. just have to have this thing who want to have catalog, it yeah, in, their, yeah. in their catalog right and it is yeah and it is a case of the cream rising to the top because mm-hmm. a lot of them too uh, the ones that are mediocre, they're really rare, but you know, it's like, you know, power trio number 968, you know, or something <laughs> right, <laughs> like right. that. A lot of those, you know, then the, the, is falling back and that same sort of situation I think happened with the uh, doo-wop and rhythm and blues records and other things too, mm-hmm. as, as time goes on, uh, the cream becomes more and yeah. more valuable, yeah. but, uh, as people get older and now in the case of even these records, the more marginal things are, are of less interest to people. People are more focused in on, you know, on the cream of the crop. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, certainly I think, you know, that the streaming and everything like that, uh, does it. The one good thing I'll say about streaming of these records is it's nice that, uh, it gets them around and, uh, these people weren't expecting checks any th- way. The thing that, you know, it just drives me nuts about stream, of course, is current bands yeah. and stuff, you know, yeah. like, uh, well, I saw an NPR one, uh, one night, I can't remember if it was Roseanne Cash or somebody, uh, famous artist or something was got their check for five and a half million listens. And yeah, the artist you know, check was like $142. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, the music business is on its head uh, these days, as you well know. Well, of course, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it's not about records uh, uh, anymore. It's, you know, they, these guys make their money on touring, which is the exact opposite, the way the music business was going. You know, it was, you know, the records were, right. that was where the money, money was, was, and the tour yeah, was yeah. the marketing side to push the records. Right. So it's Absolutely. almost the exact opposite now. It has flipped really completely. Yeah, that, that yeah, is absolutely yeah. true. So maybe some of these obscure records, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe you'll find a hit out of it or something like that where uh, somebody goes, wow, this is this is incredible. How do, how do these guys never make it and things like that, you know? So there's the greatness about it is that, yeah, you can go and find a lot of really neat old original rock and roll mm-hmm. uh, from the 60s and 70s uh, out there of which you're, you're you're bringing out so feel the music volume one right. obviously volume two is coming have we started working on that well in in my mind there's plenty there <laughs> we'll see what happens with uh with one but the it just scratches the surface in a way of of uh this whole scene it, it could be much more elaborated on all the weird characters on the ground floor of this secret society of people into this <laughs> stuff, the stories of all the artists that made these records. And, 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 you know, some of them have had books done by about them and so forth and become famous 
in a cult way, but a large cult way. But uh, the the stories are endl- endless, and the records are endless. So uh, you know, I, I'm amazed and uh, grateful that they put it together so good with anthology and uh, putting the book out in that because I couldn't imagine it. And you know, from the way it started in that, I, I realized kind of early on that I can't be making any decisions because if I start thinking about myself it's all over you know yeah you can't you can't make those uh, those <laughs> that. Right, so right. it was really good where they had some materials and I gave them some stuff I had and this and that and they put it sort of together and then as far as comments like on all the albums and a lot of pictures and stuff then when they had it pretty much finished I went over to the uh, office and they just showed it to me page by page on the computer so I'm f- first seeing what's in there and right. make an immediate comment. And that's what goes in there rather than me, like, you know, looking at it and going and home to write about it. And thinking about it and, about yeah. it and yeah. editing it. And, oh, yeah. Very good. Very good. So uh, you just got back from Europe. Uh, mm-hmm. And are you going to do a tour here in the States? Mm, not in the immediate, at least. Uh, you know, there's some possibilities coming up. And before we went to Europe, we pl- played a week of shows out in the Midwest and Detroit, Milwaukee mm. and Chicago and places like that but uh we usually get out just like to Europe once a year and to Australia once a year Mm -hmm. and then stuff will happen in the U.S. but usually not too far it's been east been a few years yeah yeah yeah, like you know going down to Philly and D.C. Mm -hmm. and Baltimore Mm -hmm. and and that around here where we can sort of do something but for getting a tour together uh, you never know with Endless Boogie we don't move you know too fast on right on that but you know we've been sort of looking to do another tour in California because we'd done one there some years back that was real fun going all the way from um, what's the one at the bottom by San Tijuana Diego. San Diego yeah. up to Vancouver in Canada uh, yeah. and, and, and just had a great time so I was hoping to do that again but yeah, uh, yeah we'd love to have you out there in California we'd so. love to get out there again for sure the yeah. only times we've been there in the last four years I think is each time we come back from touring in Australia, we hit LA and then we play a couple shows in LA before mm. we come back to New York. Oh yeah. 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 Well, diggers, uh, this, uh, this book is, is really, it's going down the rabbit hole, uh, in a great way. Uh, it exposes uh, a lot of new, uh, music out there that, uh, might be worth uh, your time. So keep that, keep that in mind. Paul, I got one last question sure. for you. What's your favorite album today? Today, okay. Are we saying today as right something now. that's out now, or <laughs> no? No time. Yours, your, the one no that time pops your mind. Uh, okay, that you're listening to, uh, uh, or okay, you just, you're going to go home and put on. You know, the, the the one that. Okay, yeah, actually, one did pop in my head earlier today, and oddly enough, it's another Lee Hazelwood connected thing. Oh, okay, <laughs> it's a album by a guy named Arthur, and the name of the album is Dreams and Images, 1967 on LHI, Lee Hazelwood International Records, and it's extremely serene, sort of folky, spooky music with a little bit of Baroque instrumentation, a really melancholy feel about it. Uh, Fans of maybe more somber Donovan psychedelic era type stuff might appeal to them uh some of the songs like uh on the mellow yellow album not mellow yellow but some of the creepy songs on that album (laughs) and that but but it has a very mysterious uh haunted quality i think it's a perfect album where every track is great and that 
usually doesn't happen to me. Usually almost every record I listen to, some track becomes annoying. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> but this one's like a perfectly mysterious walk and in the sculpted gardens of some odd mansion, you know, with statues around and stuff, and who knows what's going on, just creepy walk in the halls of time. Well, I'm going to go home and listen to that. Paul Major, thanks very much for being on Deeper Digs in Rock with us today. Thank you, Christian. Thank you. We'll talk soon. As Mark Marin said on his podcast, without Paul Major, I would know nothing about all the great records people know nothing about. Well, now I know, and now you know. I really want to thank Paul Major for a wonderful time talking records and peculiar rock and roll stories. Talk about digging deep. I really enjoyed my time with him, and I learned a lot. I also want to give a shout out to Mexican Summer Studios for hosting us and Stephanie, Robbie, and Samantha for all their time and efforts. So let's leave you with a little Paul's current band, Endless Boogie, from their 2017 release, Vibe Killer. Make sure you pick up a copy of the book, Feel the Music, The Psychedelic Worlds of Paul Major, from your favorite retailer. And also, the vinyl companion, Feel the Music, Volume 1, from Anthology Recordings. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Keep up the rockin'. I am your vibe. the wrongs of social injustice oxfam america works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives develop long-term solutions to poverty and campaign for social change and we do it with the help of our friends in the music world the beatles were oxfam supporters back in the day so were the stones and through the years musicians and music fans have helped oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too.
Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.